Let's take our Bibles and go to James chapter 5. Can we do that? James chapter 5. We have been in a series in James uh, called Faith That Works, and today is our final installment. This has been a wonderful series. I don't know about you, but just going verse by verse through the book has been a delight just to slow down the pace. And if you've been like me, I've read through the book a number of times. I, I had a chance to kind of preview it prior to you, but then, uh, like many of us, we read it through maybe once a day for several days or or uh, once a week for several weeks. How many of you have read through the book of James at least once sometime during the series? Yeah, a bunch of us. And what I'm going to encourage you to do is do that again. But if you want to pick a different book, that's okay. Just read that book and kind of immerse yourself in it. Just read it every day for an extended period of time because you'll learn new things like we have with this book. This book has been faith building. It's been strengthening to the experience. Reading through the book of James just paragraph by paragraph as we've learned it has been uh, uh, refreshing to our faith because we can pause and learn a great deal. Now, James concludes the, the, the letter with two final verses that I want to look at together today, just two verses, and then we're going to have the benediction and go home, okay, and have a slice of cake, okay? So it's a good day. It's a good weekend. And, uh, and by the way, uh, you don't want to miss next weekend. We start a new series called uh, Thrive, and then we're doing another a bang Series, a great series on the Beatitudes in the fall. They'll take us to Thanksgiving. I'm really excited about that. There's just a lot happening for fall. So you, next weekend, you really want to be here. It's going to be terrific. Back to my topic of James. James teaches us in these two short verses um, something that, that the epistles are classically known for, and that's final instructions, encouragement, maybe a bit of a warning, and certainly a blessing. Here are the words. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Our Father in heaven now, uh, quiet our hearts to hear your word and to let it bounce around in our hearts and then resound again only to settle in as it's your word. And may this meditation of our heart uh, uh, change our lives, we pray, as we encounter your truth through the power of your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. James has said for five chapters now, he says it's tough out there. If any of you uh, go through uh, diverse kinds of trouble, tribulation, he starts right out, verses 1, 2, and 3, count it all privilege. He says it's really tough. People are losing their jobs because of their faith. Trials and trouble come, and relationships then become hard to manage. You know how it is when you have trouble, then you end up with relational trouble because some people don't realize they're in trouble. And then under that pressure, people will jump to conclusions and make emotional decisions, and they'll prejudge other people, think they know the motives of other people. And then by judging, they show favoritism, and that's going to be an issue. And then we come to the conclusion that holiness is not meant for sissies because... um, this takes a monster amount of courage, not just faith, but courage to live out the faith and to, and to have a kind of faith that really works. And so when the going gets tough, you have to hold your tongue because if you don't hold your tongue, it'll incite fear and disunity and it will cause more damage than it does instruction if you don't hold your tongue well. And it causes a kind of anxiety that 
just uh, seems to dissipate the room of its holiness, and it makes holiness that much more challenging. And when uh, people mouth off, not only does it cause this kind of fear um, that just uh, works its way through the church body, but then what happens is then other people give up on holiness. They say, well, I'm headed for heaven, that's good enough, so then I'll give up on holiness, thinking they can keep one foot in society, in the world, and one foot in heaven. And God says, your legs aren't long enough for your feet to be in both places. You have to choose which kingdom you want to live in and which kingdom you want to live for. And because they're in that kind of stress, others who are giving up on that, hope people will just be forgiven and kind of let it go and then create a, a dysfunctional kind of church family if we're not careful. But then in that immense amount of stress, you know what happens when you're under immense amount of stress, your immunity drops, and your immunity drops, what happens? You get sick. People get sick. It happens to college seniors all the time. You get, you get sick right around Christmas time, Thanksgiving time. People just get sick. Why? Part of it is the food and the habit and the stress, but, but, but a lot of it's the stress dropping the immunity. And you fall out of the habits that keep us on the faith. And so then, then James calls us to pray, and that's humbling that we call ourselves to pray. And, uh, and, and then... What I find is interesting is this. I never get sick, I don't know about you, I never get sick on schedule, right? Does anybody get sick on schedule? I only know very few people who got, like I'm planning in um, late January of being sick for a week. Oh, Super Bowl week? Yeah, I'd like to be sick then too. Yeah, I'm also sick during, um, you know, Sweet 16, you know, NCAA basketball finals. I always have an issue that the doctor gives me a note for. You know, we don't plan sicknesses. They just kind of happen. And they happen like at the worst time because you aren't looking for them. You're not waiting for them. So it's humbling for us to call upon people, pray for me while I take my medicine, listen to my doctor, attend to my soul. But it's purifying too. And it's helpful to us. And James is saying it's really tough out there. And it's tough. It's so tough that some brothers and sisters, verse 19, are going to wander from the truth. They're just going to give up and wander away. And so you have to bring them back when they wander away. And when you do, remember this, verse 20. Whoever does that, whoever pulls back that sinner from their way, saves them from death, we'll talk about that, and covers a multitude of sins. When you're tempted to wander, get this. The text says, it's an indefinite article, if one of you, which implies any one of you, which really says, any one of us are capable of wondering. This is not a definite article. Like specifically, we know who's going to wander. You know what? If your heart is beating, there's a chance you're going to wander from the faith. Every single one of us could wander from the faith. So is this passage about unsaved people? Not really. Or people who are not yet Christians? Not really. Some people preach this passage like people need to come to Jesus. You know what the truth is? They do need to come to Jesus but that's not what this passage is about. This is not a soul-winning passage specifically. It's not about people coming to Jesus. It's about brothers and sisters. They're already in the family. Brothers and sisters. So to be accurate with the text, these are words that are addressed to family, which is tough talking. This is words to a brother, a sister. James is saying some of you will wander. Eventually all of us will wander. In fact, all of us wander at some point or another in reality we all wander. So when you wander, you need a friend who will come alongside and get you back on track 
And that buddy, that brother, that sister will pull you back into line and save you a lot of grief. That's what the brother's there for. You may not like it. You may go kicking and screaming, but he's there for your good. Now let's stop there for a moment. Go back to the text. And he says, verse 19, my brothers and sisters. The ancient word here is the word adolphos, uh, or adolphos, depends on how you want to pronounce it. We get our word adelphia, and uh, philos is the word for love. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, and that's why we hate the eagles. Sorry, Sadiq. We, we just, you know, he, he's an Eagles fan. We have three Eagle fans here, and they're, they're wearing green socks that don't even match, unfortunately. So, Sadiq's an Eagles fan. Back on track, Dave. Adolphos is the Greek word, and it means brother, but it's kind of this brotherly brother-sister family term. Does that make sense? So it's brotherhood. So that word appears some 14 times in the five chapters. Now, we don't have time to do it today, but this would be another great study. This is called a word study. Go back and look up every occurrence of the word brother, brother and sister in the text. And what you're going to find is this. James chapter 1, verse 2, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you fall into trouble. Brothers and sisters will tell you the truth. They'll warn you. Brothers and sisters, uh, verse 16, don't be deceived. They'll tell you the truth. They're brothers. They'll tell you the absolute truth. And if it hurts your feelings, uh, too bad. We're brothers. Brothers and sisters are there on tough days because they're brothers. They're sisters. Chapter 1, verse 19, dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. Your brother can tell you, shut up. How many of you have a brother, a sister? How many of you are only children? You will never get this if you're an only child, okay? Because you just think the world's made for you. You had your own room and your own bathroom. and You had your own toothbrush. You think you're really special. Yeah! It was wonderful. Oh, Lord, help us. So... Growing up with brothers and sisters around, you know they could trash talk you, tell you the truth. A brother will tell you the truth. You have bad breath, you need to do something about it now before you leave the house. Your brother can tell you that. Now, that hurt my feelings. I don't care it hurts your feelings. You need to go to the bathroom now and take care of that. And if you don't use Listerine or something else, we have a gas can out in the garage. But it doesn't bother us. However you want to manage that, you just take care of it. A brother will tell you the truth. Brothers and sisters, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. Brothers and sisters, they're not going to let you look foolish in public. They'll let you look foolish in private, but they'll always cover you in public. Don't brothers do that? Yeah. My brothers would make fun of me at home, beat me up at home, but in public, if anybody touched me, they'd go after them. Why? He's a brother. Brothers and sisters, they know what favoritism looks like because they grew up in a family, so they can see it quicker. Now, that's... There are 14 passages. I'm just giving you three or four or five of them just now. That's another word study you could do on your own, just about brotherhood, sisterhood, another study on your own. Isn't it wonderful, the riches of his grace in the word, the, end, the studies never end. They just don't. There's always something else you can read. Let's go back to our text now, and let's read it. Verse 19. My brothers and sisters, if any one of you should wander from the truth, Get this, point number one. The reality is this. We stray from the truth. None of us gets it right all the time. Few of us get it right two days in a row. And, 
And if you've been a believer for more than a week, you've probably had better weeks, right? I mean, if you've been a believer for a month, you've had, oh yeah, I remember that second week I was a believer, I was really cool then. You've had better weeks, worse weeks. An unbeliever cannot stray from the truth. Do you know why? Because he's never been to the truth. You can't stray from something you've never been to. That's why the Bible isn't addressing this pre-Christian here. The Bible's actually talking about a brother and a sister. A person who is not a believer in Jesus, they actually, jot this down, they actually suppress the truth, Romans 1.18. In Romans 1.25, they exchange the truth for a lie. They don't like that wording, so then they, they change the wording around, flip it a bit, play some games with the logic, and not just suppress the truth, but then flip it. Thirdly, they're blinded to the truth. They don't even see it. They refuse to receive it, Thessalonians tells us. And 1 Peter says they're actually offended. You can have someone who's far from Jesus. You could tell them the truth. You know what they'll do? They'll say, oh, that, just, that hurts my feelings. You can't say that to me. Well, it's the truth. It's the truth. And it's offensive. The reality is we all stray from the truth. But as odd as it seems, only a believer can stray. A pre-Christian cannot stray. All believers in Jesus Christ have been there. We've all done this. And it doesn't take much to decline. This is important to get. It doesn't take a huge amount of effort. Just go to your home and look at your house. Stop mowing the yard. Stop vacuuming the carpeting. Don't shampoo the carpet. Don't do the dishes. Don't mop the linoleum or the tile or whatever it is that you have. Stop Stop repairing anything. Let the burn light bulbs burn out. When they're burned out, don't replace them. Just leave it alone. You know what? You're saying, well, just, just leave it there. You know what will happen? The house will go into decline. You don't have to do anything to move, up, move the house backwards. You, it'll do that on its own, naturally. Okay? Tornadoes don't go through town and neat, neatify a town. They mess up a town. See? That's why Hebrews puts it this way. We must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard. So we, what's Hebrews saying? We don't drift away. Hebrews 2, verse 1. D.A. Carson, great author, put it this way. We do not drift towards holiness. We do not drift toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We drift towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we've escaped legalism. We drift towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. End of quote. I'm afraid Carson has hit it square on. We, we sing, we love to sing great old hymns of the faith written um, some 250 years ago. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. I need to tune my heart to sing thy praise. Robert Robinson wrote it, and it's a beautiful, great hymn, but listen to the words. He wrote these 250 years ago. You think temptation and drifting is a problem today. 250 years ago, Robinson wrote, Oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Stop there, because we don't use the word fetter. What is that? Bind. What, what is this? Let thy goodness like a fetter? Is that like a feather? No. A fetter is something that binds your feet together. Okay? It's a strap. 
Now, in light of that, he's saying, let thy goodness like a strap, like, like a handcuff, like a, a vinyl strap, let it bind my wandering heart to thee. What's he saying? My heart is prone to wander. That's the very next phrase. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. You know what his fear was? That he would wander. And this is the guy who wrote, Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. What was his concern? His concern was that he would not live a righteous life, that he could somehow wander away. You know what that's telling us? No one is immune. All of us are prone to wander. The reality is we stray from the truth. Point number two. The need is we need a brother, a sister, who will help me back. Just that simple. Go back to the verse, brothers and sisters, if any one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, that person back, remember this. And then he tells us, someone's going to bring you back. That is literally, the phrase turn is the word turn, it's literally to turn them around. This is a brother or sister who straightens you out, who says, nope, you're going the wrong way, takes you by the shoulders and re-steers your life. Now, ultimately, we know only the Lord can do this, and it's a miracle of his grace that he does. It's only the Lord, we know that. But James tells us God chooses to use, get this, when a brother or sister wanders from the faith, who does he use? A brother or a sister. He chooses to use you and me to turn our buddies around and get us back on the path. Now, about this time, a bunch of us will be saying, oh, <laughs> ooh, I think it's, I'll get, pray for them <laughs> and distance myself, you know? Because when a person wanders from the Lord, they don't really warm up to you, do they? They actually will talk about anything except the very thing that they're wondering about. So sometimes we say, well, it's none of my business, or I'll let them figure it out, or I'll wait for them to bring it up, or it's not a very loving thing to do. It's so confrontive. I don't want to really hurt their feelings, and it's none of my business. Just I'll stay out of it. That's what we do. Now, I can't answer every objection, but let me just say this. Wandering Christians rarely go towards holy Christians for advice. The holy Christians oftentimes need to make the move, and that's what James is saying. Wandering Christians sometimes even avoid growing Christians because they don't want to hear it, face it, deal with it. And, and they may even be quick to, to enter into the conversation and say, I'd just like you to do that, to confront me. Now, who do you think you are? And it, the answer is right. I'm a, I'm a pilgrim just like you are who is prone to wonder just like you are. If you say, well, I'll just wait for them to bring it up. Well, you know what? They'll never bring it up because they know. They know the answer, oftentimes. And you say, well, I don't want to confront them because that's too hard. It's not very loving. Sure, at least it doesn't feel loving. And you're right. It doesn't feel very loving. But if you were into the doctor and the doctor took x-rays and he saw something amiss, a lump or a scar, a piece of tissue, something that wasn't right, and he let you go, he said, well, you're okay. And then later you find out you have an issue. He said, yeah, I knew that, but I didn't want to tell you because I didn't want to hurt your feelings. What kind of doctor would that be? No, you need a doctor to tell you the truth, even when it hurts. 
And even if it's none of your business, to just to walk in and say, you know what, this is maybe none of my business. Here's what I'm seeing in your brother. So I could be wrong, and I'm hoping I am, but just lay that out for me, would you? Help me with that. Now, you can't do that with hundreds of people. You know what we call those people who are out there you know, cleaning up everybody else's life. They're jerks. Write that down. That's what they are, with a capital G, jerk. Thank you for laughing. Everybody knows it starts with a silent H, right? They're just idiots. Some people are that way. And they were that way prior to Christ. You know, they're just weird people. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about when you've invested in someone and you have the relationship with someone, for you to say, you know what? I, I don't want you to shipwreck your life. I don't want you to fall off the tracks. I don't want you to come off the road into the ditch. Therefore, um, take a look at this. And then here's, here's the thing. When you do that, number three, the outcome is that you're going to save a brother from calamity. You're actually going to help the brother. Why? Because this is death-like experience for them. That unrepentant person is shipwrecking their life, and you're seeing it in slow motion. The Apostle Paul calls it shipwreck. Then later he would, say, he would call, not for church discipline, but this is spiritual discipline. Some guys are even going to die if you don't help them. Remember this. He says, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way, verse 20, will save him from death, which is, which is a death-like life, sterile, hollow life. I've, been, I've looked in the eyes of a prodigal son, and I look at them, they're far from God, and they've got believing parents, and they say, yeah, I'm, I'm just chosen to go a different way. You know what? There's a hollowness in their eyes. There are bits of anger. They don't want to go there in the discussion. And You know what? You always think, oh, he'll be able to help them. No, I can't help them. Only the one who can help them is the one who has that close relationship with them. But here's what I see with that prodigal oftentimes is a regret. Like, I wish I could turn this around earlier. It's too late. It's never too late, but that's what, they, that's what shows up in their language and body language. But when you save the brother, you save him from that death-like experience, and then you're going to have to cover a multitude of sins, which isn't going to be happy, but you're going to do it. Why? Because he's a brother. So the outcome is that you're going to save a brother from some calamity. It's rescue, it's reconciliation, it's returning him to life, bringing vitality back. And when you cover the sins, that multitude of sins, it's not that you're being codependent or that you're enabling. It's not any of that. It's that you're covering their sins. Best way to illustrate this is um, I, I, I was in a restaurant once. There was a party. I, I didn't know who was paying what. I said, uh, let me pitch in here. You know what the guy told me? And you've said this to someone else. Uh, don't worry about it. I've got it covered. You ever heard that phrase? And they had actually paid the tab. And I said, can I pitch in a bit? Nope, I got it covered. Can I leave the tip? Nope, I got it covered. You've heard that phrase. You've probably used it. That does not mean, what that means is I don't even have to pay anything. What that does not mean is that nobody paid anything. (laughs) That's called robbery. (laughs) That's called we're doing dishes till midnight. That's what that's called, right? That means he paid the price. What's James saying? He's saying, when you've got a brother whose life is off the road and in the ditch, you're going to pull him out, and you're going to have to cover it. It's going to cost you something, but you're going to get a brother back. You understand this? And it's going to cost you something. So don't think, oh, well, okay, I'd rather just tell him he's off the road. 
and keep driving. That's not going to help him. He's off the road, we're crying out loud. All you're doing is announcing he's off the road. That isn't restoration. That's just idiot prophetic utterance that does no one any good. He's off the road. Anybody knows that. It's when you decide you're going to pull him back on the road and you pay for the tow, emotional, spiritual, whatever tow, and you bring him back on the road, now you've restored a brother. Do you know why we do that? Because we do not leave a brother behind. You don't leave a brother in the field. He's your brother. And when you do that, you save your brother from that death-like experience, and then you know you really have a brother. But if all you do is announce it, that's not really helping him. You're just announcing the obvious. He's got real problems. Have you ever had that happen? You'll, you'll hear someone else say, uh, uh, so-and-so's not in church. Why aren't they in church? Oh, yeah, they don't come to church anymore. Why? Because they got real problems. Okay, I thought that's why we go to church. I mean, I thought that's why I, I, I come to be a blessing, but then to receive a blessing. I don't get that. We have to circle up and cover each other's faults as we pull them to safety. And then at the end of that, when he tries to pay you back, you just say, I got you covered. You get that? It's so cool. Now, let me give to you uh, what's happened to you. You say, well, I don't know if I want to do that. Let me tell you this. Someone paid your tab too. His name's Jesus. He did it 2,000 years ago, and he got you covered of your sins. And there may have been some brothers or some sisters along the way who have gotten you covered along the way, who bailed you out along the way. And your job now is to bail out another brother. Okay? So what Jesus has done for you and me, now he expects us not to save them for heaven, but to save them from a hellish kind of life here on earth. He expects us to bail each other out. Now, if you are like my brother, I, I have two brothers, one older than me, one younger than me. It's been that way most of my life, now that I think about it. He's always been older. The other one's always been younger. Some of you are writing that down. That's profound. I know. I have one brother who likes to travel to Europe, and he'll, he'll travel. He'll be gone for a, a year or two or longer, and, and so I, you know, I can't find him, and I'll, I'll talk to my mom. How's he doing? You, know, you heard from him? And, no, but when I find him, I'm going to kill him because he hasn't called. Well, I, I hope he's safe, Mom. I mean, for his sake, I hope he's wounded in a ditch somewhere, you know, because, you know, why don't you call your mother? You know, I, I talked to my brother. I haven't talked to him for a year. You know, I, I have never, ever said, uh, you didn't call. I, I thought you were mad at me. I've never, <laughs> he would go, Bleh. I've never done that with my brother. He's never done that with me, ever. You know, when we pick up the phone and talk to each other, we pick up right where we left off. Now, I could talk to him last week, and then I'll talk to him again this week. We'll pick up right where we left off, because he's my brother. He'll tell me the truth. We'll laugh about life. We'll encourage each other, and then we'll hang up. There's, there's no conflict there. Why? He's my brother. It was May of 1940. Germany was uh, trekking through Western Europe, and it took anything it wanted to. The United States was trying to stay out of the war. France couldn't avoid it. It was being overrun. Uh, Norwegian leaders were running out of the country and, and ruling from exile. Belgium was falling. And, uh, and Hermann Goering, who uh, led the panzer divisions of the Germans, uh, said he would crush the French army, and he was on his way to do that. 
there were thousands and thousands of uh, military troops that were backing up uh, in that war towards England, and they couldn't back up fast enough. And in their, in their retreat, they actually left great equipment in the field. And so as they retreated, they were giving the enemy ammunition and artillery. It was a sad day. 1,500 British sailors had perished when Germans, uh, the Germans had sunk uh, with their aircraft carrier, uh, an aircraft carrier called the Glorious, and, and two of the destroyers, 1,500 in a day. And the, the German panzer divisions were just marching through, and they were surrounding now the French 10th Army. It looked really bleak. These guys who didn't have any equipment left, just a few guns in their hands, had retreated all the way to the west, uh, western portion of Europe. And they had assembled in a little town called Dunkirk. The parliament was let known in England, and they didn't know what to do. And so they bowed to pray and get ready for disaster. There were some 300,000 foot soldiers there, most of whom didn't have enough ammunition to defend themselves. And they were sitting ducks, literally. If the German Air Force had flown over, these guys would have died in a moment. Um, Van Runsted, the uh, German general, had been told to temporarily halt the attack for 48 hours. And they didn't fly over only because there was a British air base right across the bay and they didn't, uh, across the sound, I'm sorry. And so they didn't fly over. And these troops stood in Dunkirk as if no one knew they were there. But it was 300,000 guys. The ships couldn't get there, and some stats are really different, but the, the British could only pick up 17,000 of them. And that was an optimistic number. And it was at that point that a bunch of little guys with little boats, merchants, fishing boats, little sailing boats, they all took to the sound. And they all scooted across the water picked up six, eight, ten guys, 20 guys, 50 guys, whatever they could get on their boat, scooted them back to England to safety. And they did it in little tiny boats, just a handful of guys at a time. And that became the spirit of Dunkirk. And what happened on that day, May 27, 1940, fishing boats, pleasure craft, merchant marine vessels, small boats, sailing boats retrieved British, French, and Belgian troops from being bombed out of the harbor, we would have lost 300,000 troops in a day if they, if they had known. And what the big ships couldn't do and what the military couldn't do, and understand this, the guys who gave up their day of fishing gave up their income that day to save some military. And they expended their fuel because there was no, they weren't military ships, they weren't getting fuel from the port. They, it came out of their pocket, plus the income they lost that day. But you know what? At the end of that day, guess what they had on their ship? Brothers. Brothers. This guy died for that guy. Why? Because he paid the price for me. He covered me when I couldn't cover myself. And that became a turning point. That gave a kind of a steel resolve to the guys. These guys will fight for me. I will fight for them. And that's what the church has to have, is that kind of resolve. And so I leave you with just three simple questions. Do you have one, two, three, good, really good brothers and sisters in Christ 
people you can be honest with, people who will be honest with you. And if you hold yourself at a distance, that's only going to hurt you. If you don't speak the truth, they cannot help you. If you live in denial, they cannot help that. You need a brother or sister or two or three. Are you part of a community group, just a small group with brothers and sisters, where that kind of relationship could be found? And and you know what? You can't have a hundred of them. You cannot. And that's the crazy part about this. We always think, well, I went to church, but you walked in and the people in the lobby said, good morning, good to see you. And you know what you said? Good morning, good to see you. And you didn't really really care about them. You don't know them. You're just glad you're not Pinocchio. Have you seen that ad? You could be a motivator. You know, you have potential. (laughs) You know, you're walking to the lobby and they go, good morning, good to see you. And you say, good to see you. I could care less. I don't know who you are. I just give me my bullets and let me go. And they're going, you know, if you only knew my life. You know, the people in the lobby are saying, good to see you. And they're actually saying, my feet are killing me. You know, that's what they really are thinking. You know, and the other people, they aren't telling you the truth. You know why? We don't have the time for that. It's not the place for that. It's just, you know, we're trying to encourage each other in the faith. And that's good, helpful. But you need a small band. Not hundreds. You need maybe two, three, four, five people. Men or women just around you, who will speak truth into your life and who will care for you and run with you to the wall and back. And if you don't have that, you need to get in a community group. They're going to fire up next week again. and uh, We're talking about that in the the days ahead. You you just need to have this real sense that this is a brother. This is a sister. This is... uh, Dr. Dan Rotoff from Bethel University, he teaches family therapy. He says, you need a two o'clock in the morning friend. Isn't that true? Someone you could call at two in the morning and they wouldn't say, yeah, what do you want? Nope, they would take you. They, and they would, they'd get out of bed, they'd come get you. That's the kind of friend you need. And that's the brotherhood, sisterhood that James is talking about. You got it? Okay, let's bow together for prayer. Let's stand as we pray. With their heads bowed and their eyes closed, my prayer is going to be for those who uh, would say, Dave, I'm not there yet. I feel far from God, I, or I'm close to God, but I, I really don't know Jesus. I need Jesus as my Savior. You talk about being in the family, I feel like an outsider looking in the window. Would you open your heart now and just tell the Lord, Lord, I need Christ to be my Savior. I trust him as Savior and Lord. I, I want to welcome him in my life, and I want to follow him in faith. I need someone to forgive my sins, prepare a home for me in heaven. I want to be a child of yours. You may want to pray that prayer with somebody. I encourage you just at the close of service, step up to the front, pray with Sadiq. He'll pray with you or for you. Uh, Stop at the lobby at the kiosk at the Welcome Center. They're happy just to give you more info about what it means to be a Christ follower. And Father, I, I thank you for your word. It's been so good for us in these moments together so therapeutic to our hearts, our souls. It touches and taps our spirit. It, it uh, challenges our habits, our defense mechanisms. It knows the desperate wickedness that's inside of us and yet somehow finds the places of hope and fans them into flame. So we thank you. May we be people who, who live holy lives and live with lives as brothers and sisters helping each other out along the way. Bless us, we pray together in Christ's name. And the church says, amen.
Amen.